welcome to our panel of speakers today, who I will introduce in just a minute. In this podcast, we want to explore how we can transform coasts to be prepared for current and future social and environmental challenges. In my work, I have been talking to people working on coastal management on England's south and east coasts to find out what the challenges and opportunities for adapting to climate change are. In those interviews, I was especially interested in hearing their thoughts on the role and opportunity for transformational adaptation, longer term, larger scale or systems change adaptation options. Today, we explore with three experts what transformational adaptation on the coast is, what it might look like in an East Coast context, and what the barriers and opportunities to transformational adaptation are. Our three speakers are here as individuals, representing not their organisations, but speaking from their long-standing experiences, learning and work in the coastal context. Firstly, I would like to introduce myself and Rebecca, who will be facilitating today's discussion. I'm Dr. Sien van der Plank. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and a visiting researcher at the University of Southampton. I research the role, resilience and opportunities for individuals, communities and local stakeholders in coastal adaptation to current and future hazards. We also have with us Rebecca Wally, who is a policy associate for Public Policy Southampton and is assisting with this project on transformational adaptation. She's also interested in a career in climate change policy. Rebecca is currently a PhD student at the University of Southampton studying biodiversity response to climate change 200 million years ago. Secondly, I would like to introduce our three guests on today's podcast. We've got Kelly Fisher, who is Flood and Coastal Erosion Risk Management Senior Advisor at the Environment Agency. Kelly has worked for the Environment Agency for nine years, specialising in adaptation to coastal change since 2016, with a focus on East Anglia. Kelly is a coastal engineer and works with coastal protection authorities to help communities adapt and transition away from risk. She is currently the EA lead for Coastal Transition Accelerator Program in East Anglia. We also have with us Dr. Helen Jay, Senior National Consultant for the Coast at the National Trust, but previously Principal Coastal Geomorphologist at a leading engineering consultancy. And finally, I'd like to welcome Peter Aldous, MP for Waveney. A warm welcome to all three of you. We're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on transformational adaptation from your diverse experiences and areas of expertise. Peter, could I ask you to please introduce yourself um, and also perhaps reflect on what transformational adaptation means to you? Yes, many, many thanks. And it's, it's great to be here. I'm Peter Aldous. I'm MP for Waveney in Suffolk. Waveney is the um, most easterly constituency in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm East Anglian born and bred and lived relatively near the coast that my whole life. Um, early years, childhood was spent my holidays with my, with my grandmother on the North Norfolk coast and days out were spent on the Suffolk coast. Um, I think when I look at the East Anglian coast, it has been, well, it's changed dramatically over the past 2,000 two years. Um, if we look right back, of course, um, the fens um, were drained for, um, for sort of um, by man for um, arable and food production. Um, and then if you look on the coast over the years, you've got the medieval village of Dunwich, which has or town of Dunwich, which has, has a which went disappeared be, 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 um, beneath the seas a long, long time ago. In my own constituency, um, east of Corton, which is on the coast now, there's a village called Newton, which was lost in the been lost in the last hundred years. 
I think when I when I look at co- when I look at the coast and our ch- and working with um, with the coast over the last few year, over the last few years, I go back actually before I was even born to 1953, and I hear stories from family from my mother who basically woke up on the on the morning after the 1953 floods, and it was it took everyone by surprise. It caused dramatic um, dramatic changes to to the uh, to the East Anglian coast. My mother was fortunate that she lived on a hill. People who were not so fortunate were those who lived in the beach village in my constituency, um, in Lowestoft, and basically the 1953 floods destroyed the, the, the beach village and it's now an industrial estate. More recently, while I've been, been MP, we have the storm surge of 2013, which really, I think, precipitated a major project in my constituency, which is going on at the moment, which is the Lowestoft um, flood management project. It's a complicated project. It's not before time. A town like Lowestoft is, should have had formal coastal protection a long, long time ago. Elsewhere in my constituency, and it's only a nine-mile stretch of coast, there are there are schemes at um, Gunton and Corton, which I think it's a managed adaptation approach. That's been going on for some time. There's also a, a scheme at Pakefield, which um, where, the, where the cliffs are eroding dramatically, and also Kessingland, where there is good, a very good example of what I would describe as um, partnership working. The transformational adaptation, what does it mean to me? Well, it means working strategically over a long period, not making knee-jerk reactions in a short time. It means making decisions backed up by research. It means working with local communities. And it means finding ultimately long-term solutions that enable people to live and work on an ever-evolving coastline. Brilliant. That's a wonderful response. Thank you, Peter, for introducing yourself. Perhaps, Kelly Fisher, could I invite you to introduce yourself next and also reflect on what transformational adaptation means to you? Thanks very much, Sean. Um, so, yeah, my name is Kelly Fisher. I'm a senior advisor working for the Environment Agency, and my focus has very much been on adaptation to coastal change. Um, over the years, um, I've worked with Coastal Partnership East for a long time. That brings together the coastal management expertise from North Norfolk District Council, East Suffolk Council and Great Yarmouth Borough Council as well. Um, and I've worked for the National Coastal Team with a focus on adaptation to coastal change, working with DEFRA quite a lot um, on their adaptation policies and, and their coast policies. So what does transformational coastal change mean to me? Um, well, I'm really delighted to hear some of the things that Peter's said, actually, um, because they're, they're very similar to my thoughts as well. Um, at the moment, we have a situation where we tend to be quite reactionary on the coast. Um, and I think we need to plan better for the long term. Uh, and it's really important that we work with communities in order to deliver that transformational change over the years. Um, so rather than just being reactionary and getting to a situation where we've got a problem, uh, we might need to undertake some emergency works. We're concerned that a community may not be sustainable. It's time we're honest with communities and say, we know that this area isn't going to be sustainable. We have shoreline management plans uh, that look to the long term. They have various different policies. Uh, they maybe hold the line. 
no active intervention or manage realignment. I won't go into what those mean at the moment, but those give us those long term plans. We need to take them a little bit step further now. We need to start looking to that long term, saying we know that this is a managed realignment frontage. So we know that it needs to erode for various reasons. It might be technical, environmental or economic but people live on that frontage. So we need to have a plan in order to, to transition away from risk. And that's what transformational um, coasts mean to me. Thank you, Kelly. I think that really builds on, on Peter's introduction. Um, it's, yeah, we're really starting to build a very holistic vision, I think, for what transformational adaptation on coasts means. Helen, I'm gonna hand the ball over to you. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and reflect on what transformational adaptation means? Yes, thank you. Good morning, all. Um, my name's Helen Jay. I currently work for the National Trust as a national advisor on coasts. But prior to joining the Trust earlier this year, um, I worked for an engineering consultancy. And through this role, I was involved in developing the shoreline management plans that Kelly's just mentioned um, and coastal strategies across England and Wales. But um, much of my work focused on the, the East Coast. Um, obviously, that's where we're seeing quite a lot of coastal change um, and therefore where we need to be thinking of our solutions. My background is in coastal geomorphology, so my core interest is about understanding how our coasts change and really using that understanding to think how we can best manage risk to our communities in the future. Um, and that could include moving them out of the way. So it's really thinking about what we might expect to happen uh, to our coast, how we might manage that and, and managing those risks. For me, transformational adaptation um, is very much about sort of taking that step on from just reacting to change to really thinking about how we can approach the issue in a new way, uh, as Kelly was saying, in order to be prepared and ready for the future. I think it's also an opportunity to, to look to improve our coastal uh, zones and be a little bit braver about doing something new, thinking about the many benefits our coasts bring to us, uh, whether that's providing homes for people, but also homes for nature um, and also a wonderful place for us all to visit. Uh, I think we all have brilliant memories of visiting the coast. We want to keep our coast vibrant and alive so that um, future generations can enjoy them too. So I think this is a really good opportunity to, to start thinking about how our coast could look in the future and how we can move there. Yeah, absolutely, Han. And I think that's something that we're trying to achieve with today's discussion as well, to have a space to discuss what do we want the coast to look like and how can we get there and what barriers are there today to getting to that tomorrow we want. So on that note, I think I will hand over to Rebecca to get this discussion started and see what we what we come up with today. Thanks, Ian. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that everyone had quite similar ideas of what transformational adaptation was. Um, and there was alluding to these long term changes that need to happen. And I wondered if anyone had uh, specific examples from the East Coast of um, these adaptation needs and uh, more generally, if we time hopped to 50 years in the future, what would you like the East Coast to look like? If anyone wants to dive in. I can dive in probably with very, I, and forgive me if I'm being parochial, 
I can dive in and just talk about um, cases with um, studies and examples in in my own constituency, and then I anticipate that Kelly and Helen can widen it out further along the East Coast. Um, if I look at the four projects that are going taking place in in or, or being planned or taking place in the constituency at the moment, the Lowestoft scheme is a traditional um, coastal defence project in putting in basically putting up a wall and a barrage. It's, a, it's actually a very complicated project. Um, it should have been done a long, long time ago. Um, and I think large settlements like Lowestoft, you do there is a need for there is no alternative but such but such proposals because you just can't relocate. Um, hundreds, you know, probably hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of homes and businesses. And also you need that, you need that defence so that the, so that businesses have the confidence to then come and invest in the area. And we have great opportunities at that, on that at the moment with um, the, or the renewables taking place in the North Sea, right off our coast. We are the, um, you know, fifty percent of the UK's um, offshore wind fleet is, is is anchored off is and will be anchored off the Norfolk and Suffolk coast. When I look at the other schemes in the uh, in the constituency, they then I think are good examples of transformational adaptation that is gradually taking place. And the scheme at Kessingland is that's been it's. It really is a multi-purpose, multi-multi-partnership approach. Um, in many respects, the town count, the, the town council there, they are taking the lead. They're working with local landowners. They're working. They're working with the internal drainage board. Working with the other councils and the environment agency as well. And what you've got there is shoreline realignment, and it's it's a, it will be an exciting challenge in that what is a an important. Um, E ecological setting is will change dramatically from being a freshwater habitat to a saline habitat and um, that presents challenges but also significant opportunities. If I look at the scheme at Pakefield um, that's really come up very very quickly in the last two or three years um, accelerated cliff erosion, which is both dangerous and also uh, means that um, some holiday homes have been lost over the cliff in the last last few months, which has you know been very tragic and very difficult for those who've been affected. There is, however, Winpakefield. There is a long term solution, and this is where um, research and long term planning enables one to actually pinpoint that. In that, actually, the long term solution. Moving up from the Kessingland area, something called Benekaness, it is actually moving up northwards and will, in due course, provide Pakefield with its coastal protection. But when we look at due course, due course is likely to be in about 15 years' time. So some sort of arrangements for protection for that, for that until um, when it arrives, they need to put in place. And that is that looks as if it's going to be in the form of um, rock protection, which will be put in in the very short term to, to provide some immediate protection. And then what I would describe a medium term solution, taking us taking us up to that 15 year period when um, when Benekaness arrives, that will be put in place then. So those are examples locally, I think, where you've got um 
transformation and adaptation taking, taking place at the moment, local communities working with the experts to come up with local, very much bespoke solutions. I'll, I'll chip in at, at that point, if that's okay. Thanks, um, Peter. That was that was interesting. I, I'm um, pleased to hear you mention those projects. I've been involved with those, with those at some point or another. Um, yeah, to broaden that out a little bit, I just want to start by saying erosion is an important process. Um, we often sort of um, couch erosion as, as a negative risk. And of course, when homes are impacted, it is a, a very serious risk. But erosion has to happen. We need sediment to enter the system. Um, it is not possible for us to, to build a concrete ring around the entire British Isles because we would have no beaches left. Erosion must continue. And um, the best form of a, a defence for some communities is a beach. So there are areas of North Norfolk that are designated as managed realignment and no active intervention because we need that sediment. We need that cliff erosion because it feeds down drift communities. Um, think of somewhere like sea pooling um, where sediment has to be trapped. Um, because then that helps defend those communities. But any time we put in traditional defences, we create a hard point on the coast. And we do set ourselves up for a future problem. That doesn't mean to say that defence is always the wrong option. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that. But sometimes when we put in defences, we create that hard point. And at some point in the future, whether it's 50 years, whether it's 100 years or whether it's 200 years, those defences are going to start to be outflanked. Sea level rise is not stopping. Climate change is not stopping. So we need to think about the long term for everywhere. And there's different solutions depending on the place that you're at. If we take Bacton Sandscaping as a good example, um, that involved putting uh, two million tonnes of sediment onto the beach um, as a sand recharge type project. Um, that sediment will now move through natural processes and feed villages down drift. Now, that didn't involve concrete or rock. That was a very natural solution. You could call traditional defences adaptation. Uh, the same as relocating people elsewhere is also adaptation. But it's different options for different places. And we have to make sure that one thing doesn't make it worse for communities down drift. And, and that's really important. Um, so that's just my... Uh, to Pennethworth on, on that particular topic. And, and I think, Kelly, uh, that raises the importance of trying to understand the system first um, in order to ensure, as you said, we're not building up problems for future generations. Um, and really that is sort of a, a tagline of those shoreline management plans is that we shouldn't um, be leading future generations into, into uh, problem situations. Um, and almost create that cycle of defend, uh, rebuild, defend. Um, and I think that's where transformation adaptation really plays a role of, of maybe taking that step back in places and thinking, what could we do differently? We're facing an issue now. Let's rather than patch and repair, which has been quite a common method uh, because it avoids difficult <laughs> conversations at times, it's having uh, the bravery uh, and also the permission, I think, um, to, to think differently and think, you know, can, can we do something different in these locations? Um, I think we also need to recognise that how we use our land is likely to change in the future. 
um, not just pressures because of sea level rise, but also other changes. I think um, Peter alluded to it uh, in terms of salinity. So as sea level rise, uh, we'll be finding some of our low-lying areas will become increasingly um, saline, uh, which potentially affects sort of the, the agricultural use of that land. And again, it's building that holistic understanding of, of all the possible changes and being able to map out how our coast might change in the future and therefore where we're best spending our money, um, but also where we're best um, placing people, nature, agriculture, um, and really sort of reframing how we think about our coasts. Thanks, everyone. Um, I wanted to ask, we're talking, touched a little bit on communities, and um, I was wondering what you think the role of communities is in transformational adaptation um, and especially in that kind of climate change uh, lens. From, if I just go, go, go in on that, if that's all right, Rebecca, I think absolutely vital. Um, it is important that communities lead in finding these solutions and moving towards transformational adaptation rather than feel that they are having things done to them. And if I look at, you know, go, if I go back some years before I was an MP, when I was a, a councillor, a bit further down the coast to me, there were pl plans at, just in the South World area for the Blythe Estuary. And there, very much, the headline was managed retreat. And the community at that time felt, hang on, something is being done to us. Actually, the, communi the communities, the local councils, the local landowners, the internal drainage board, they actually need to be in the vanguard of planning for the future. And if I look at the, the projects that are taking place, which I've mentioned, the Kessingland and Pakefield schemes, it is the communities that are leading them. And they are getting support from Coastal Management East, from the Environment Agency, um, and specialist consultants coming in and assisting them. And therefore, you know, that is, it is absolutely vital. And um, if you don't, um, I think if you look in examples in also in Lowestoft, um, the big scheme there, it's very important to keep the local community what's informed, informed of what's going on. And likewise, the team they're leading on the project are going out into the local schools. So the communities are very much part of the solution. And on anything, as I said, it's they need to be in the vanguard and they mustn't feel that something is being done unto them. Um, I would totally agree with you, Peter. I think um, also involving communities can improve that understanding of what will be the best solution for them. Um, I think a difficulty is that not only does our coast change, but our communities evolve as well. We have people come into a community, leave a community. We also have changes in social attitudes over time. And I think anything that we do, we just need to remember to, to include some flexibility in our schemes and projects going forward. And remember that that engagement, and I'm sure Kelly could say a lot more on this, um, is, is live. It, it doesn't stop. It continues throughout uh, and it will never stop because we need to make sure those people are fully embracing that change um, and as you said are a key part of that decision making process. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree that communities must be absolutely central um, to transformational adaptation. But there's a, a few points to make on that. And that, that is, as human beings, we don't like change very much. We're not very good with change. Um, and we've got a situation at the moment where we are willing to fund as a society uh, traditional defences. We're not so willing to fund adaptation and relocation. And that leads to some problems because my experience of working with communities on the ground is that if you can have a community understand the baseline, what is happening to them, the technical reasons uh, that, that risk is occurring. And then if you can give them options, different options for their future, and they understand those, and then they understand the benefits associated with those options, then you start to get somewhere. Then you start to get a community say, okay, I understand that I can't have everything as I everything the same. Most human beings, if you say to them, what do you want? I just want everything to stay the same. And we know technically, environmentally and economically, that's often the one thing that communities can't have. So there needs to be an honest conversation. So when we work through our baseline and then we get to our options, the option is where well, you can have traditional defences or nothing. And that is a problem. And that, I think, is where we need to see some change, because we've got a situation where uh, we tr treat things in a very black and white way when it comes to flood and coastal erosion risk management. Uh, we're willing to fund traditional defences because there's societal benefit there, but we're not willing to fund relocation away from risk because that might be individual benefit. That might be seen as compensation. And as a, as a government, as a society, we've said that's going a little bit too far. So we need to see some more work in that area, in my opinion. And when we're talking to communities, we absolutely need the support of community leaders, um, councillors, MPs, uh, people in our authority, whether it's even whether it's small community groups. And we need those representatives, to be honest, because let's um, let's face it. If we've got a leader who's saying, I will keep everything the same for you as human beings, we're going to go, that's great. That that person sounds fantastic. Or if we've got someone who's saying, actually, we can't keep everything the same you may need to leave your homes. Well, politically, that's a trickier message, isn't it? So we need those leaders to, to, be, to be honest and, and really sort of back up that we need adaptation and that we can't defend everywhere. We, we know that it's not the right option for everyone. The language we use is very important for communities as well. Peter managed, um, mentioned manage retreat. Retreat, that's a really militaristic term, isn't it? Hold the line, another militaristic term. Do people move to the seaside to have a war? No, I don't think they do. I think militaristic language, personally, I'd like to see that go in the bin. I, I don't even like the term defence, really, if I'm honest. I'd rather see us refer to a seawall or a rock groin or a risk management structure. We don't need militaristic language because we galvanise that image in people's minds that it's defence or nothing. You know, the Victorians knew how to do it. They built sea walls and defended everywhere. Well, actually, that's left us with a, a legacy of, of issues in some cases. It's not always the right decision. We need to make adaptation as appealing as traditional defence. And that's where I think change is needed. Kelly, do you feel that there's been a, a, a shift in people's, well, and Peter, sorry, as well, a shift in people's perception of coastal change? I mean, as Peter sort of said right at the start, this coast has been changing visibly 
um, for for centuries. But as you said, that there is sort of that mindset of resistance to change, which I think very much came in probably with the Victorians when they built our resorts and put up the seawalls and promenades and very fixed infrastructure. But I'm sort of seeing with sort of more information coming out about the reality of climate change, uh, that the uncertainty of the future, that people are, are speaking more candidly about it. And I just wonder whether you're finding that within the communities that you're you're working with as well or whether there's sort of more work to be done on that or whether you very much feel it's it's more that regulatory side that that needs work um improving on it i i think um i think actually there has been a significant improvement over the last 20 20 years or so and i think it's for a variety of reasons that we've touched upon i think that um, it's recognised that the, the communities have got to play a lead role, and so there's more of a collegiate approach being pursued. I think there is all. I think there is also um, um, with climate change being very much talked about every day. There, that is that is that is meant a sort of a bit better understanding in in the in wider society of of the challenges as well. I think also that, you know, certainly on the E, which we've touched upon, you have got Coastal Partnership East now covering a significant part of the Norfolk and Suffolk coastline. And I think that has been, is, has been, has been, has been a major step forward. You know, previously, each local council would have their own probably one stroke two officers responsible for this who would be pursuing that very that defensive reactionary approach quite often akin to sort of sticking their their finger in a dam so to speak and they were permanently on the back foot and by actually those councils those four counts well three councils as it is coming together and um, pooling their resources, what that has meant is you've been able to build a team who have knowledge, have understanding, and have that expertise, who can then go out and work with those local communities. Yeah, I, I agree, Peter. I, I do think the situation has has improved. Certainly, um, people are more aware of climate change and sea level rise. That's certainly more in the news. Um, the more instances of, of flood and risk that we have around the globe sort of brings it to the forefront of people's minds. Unfortunately, anxiety comes with that as well. Um, I also think um, from a uh, DEFRA and Environment Agency perspective, we've improved on how we're communicating some of this information. We now have a national strategy that talks for the first time about transition away from risk that recognises that we may need relocation in our armoury. We, uh, Emma Howard Boyd, our chair, has been on the news and said things like adapt or die. You know, we, we are starting to say we cannot build ourselves out of risk at, in all occasions. Um, DEFRA's newest policy statement makes some commitments on adaptation as well. So I think we're getting there. There's certainly more work to be done. I would like to see um, things like the Flood and Coastal Resilience Innovation Programme that DEFRA's just launched, making its way into business as usual, the, the Coastal Transition Accelerator Project, some of the the on-the-ground things that we're going to look to be undertaking as a part of those projects. They need to make it into business as usual. 
I would not want to see a project that gets undertaken, has some really good work and then sits on a shelf for 10 years. We don't take that, that good working into, into everyday operational stuff. Um, so, yes, we're getting there. We're not all the way yet. And do we um, do we need to be a bit, I think you were uh, speaking about this earlier, Kelly, um, more honest about the words we use. I mean, we've talked about adaptation, but as you quite rightly said earlier, adaptation can cover increasing the height of your seawall to relocation, you know, and they're at two vastly different ends of the, the scale. And I just wonder whether that adds confusion because we're maybe not being brave enough in the language that we're using. Uh, we're sort of trying to um, not scare people quite rightly, but also I think it it just maybe adds that uncertainty about what's really meant it when we use the term adaptation. Um, and I just wondered, again, sort of you're working more sort of at the front line with the communities and whether you're finding that or can we start using the phrase relocation? Yeah, there's there's two sides to that, isn't there? There's there's the side of um, using language that that doesn't frighten people, um, but we need to be honest as well. Um, so it's it's getting that that balance. Um, I don't like using language with communities that is um, overly dramatic or evokes a sense of grief or anything like that. I hate to say communities lost to the sea. Um, you know, erosion happened and, and homes could no longer be where they were. Um, so I, I don't like to use anything that evokes too much grief um, or an overly emotional re response in that way. It's, it's not the right way to go about it. And, and the, anything militaristic, um, because it just funnels people towards this defence is my only option. Um, and we know that relocation and transition is, is a possibility. Um, and I, I put that in all elements of my work. I've, I've been in community village halls where I've used the wrong term and you can lose a whole room because you've used slightly the wrong word. It's so important that we get our language right. It's something that I'm, I'm particularly very keen on. I think just touching in on language and we've got like the highlighted on the too aggressive language, I think it's also important not to, um, you can use language that lulls people into a false sense of complacency and I can remember people talking to me about oh the 1953 floods they were a one in a thousand year occurrence likewise someone said in the 2013 flood so there they are a one in a hundred year occurrence when you use that language I think people say well once in a thousand years that's not going to bother me nor is once in a hundred years and so I think what is happening with climate change is that these events actually happen every every few years. And one of my frustrations with the, and then, um, we might want to come on and talk about this, is the projects we're talking about. They take time. And if you look at the low-stoffed flood defence scheme, that, um, that has moved forward primarily as a result of the 2013 floods. We're now nine years further forward. Yes, we're on, we're on from that. We're on site building the flood walls. The main part of that, the barrage, is still a few years ahead. And I have to say, every when we go into every winter, I'm sort of holding my breath and crossing my fingers that we're not going to get those um, those tides and those, those winds and the rain converging all in that... What, people I think falsely call the perfect storm, which is going to cause havoc whilst we're waiting for those defences to be put in place. It, yeah, it's really interesting that everyone's 
kind of focused on how we communicate adaptation, transformation adaptation to communities is quite a big barrier to kind of getting it done. Um, do any of you have, can any of you think of other barriers maybe um, in national policy or within local communities to being able to enable transformational adaptation? And um, can you think of any support that you'd need to get um, more transformational adaptation projects off the ground? What I would um, say, there, you know, on that, I think, as I said, Coastal Partnership East has has helped in our area, is leading the way. But I think there is still confusion um, as to, you know, there who is the lead authority per se. And there are an awful lot of organisations and involved. And I think. Coastal Partnership East do provide that um, that clarification. I think um, I think we'll come on to the uh, quite sure onto the issue of funding. I think you know I think it's fair enough to say that um, that I don't think that coastal um, the coastal management gets enough funding. But I think in the in the in the in the, in the world we're in at the moment, um, there are an awful lot of others who think the same. So we're not going to, I don't think, get all the funding that we that we actually do need. When I look at Coastal Partnership East, they are remarkably successful at finding um, sort of um, pots of money all over the place in government and in local government. Um, ideally, that shouldn't be necessary. I think I do find that increasingly you are going, you're going, um, you know, DEFRA are, um, in theory, the government um, government department responsible for flood risk, uh, for, for coastal erosion, but it goes, it, it transcends into other 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 um, departments as well, Department of Bays, obviously, with the renewable projects I talk about, some good you know that 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 is that is integral as well with um that bringing that business to to coastal communities which is so important for regeneration the department of leveling up that has a role to play because coastal communities have their own particular challenges when it comes to coast to 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 um to leveling up and so i think the working you know one's way around the myriad of um, government departments trying to break, frustratingly trying to break down those silos, that can, you know, that that is something I would hope we could do better. Um, I think you're totally right there, Peter. Um, I think um, adaptation just crosses so many different disciplines. Um, so any decisions will be multi-organisational with sort of many different players and stakeholders and I think coordinating those is extremely complex and difficult and although we do have our shoreline management plans to help uh, provide that long-term vision they're very much from a flood and coastal defence viewpoint they're not master plans they're not integrated coastal zone management plans they are very much looking at that that frontal strip whereas I think for transformational adaptation we need to look at a much wider coastal strip bringing in a lot of those different organizations um, and just thinking sort of at that bigger scale and longer term um, and again the processes that we have in place at the moment don't encourage you to think long term 
Um, planning is typically 10 to 15 years. Uh, our economics are very much driven by what you can do now and benefits that are achievable now rather than looking at sort of those those longer term benefits, which is what adaptation can give us. Um, they also aren't very good at looking at sort of those sort of non-tangible or um, less defined benefits, uh, thinking about sort of mental well-being, tourism, uh, nature, just we're very poor at putting a, a good value on those and then bringing those into a, an argument. I think, as, as Kelly was saying earlier, our system at the moment is still very much in that defend mindset. And that's that's the first thing that we think about and try and justify everything else is a little bit of an afterthought and should is considered a cheaper option whereas this isn't necessarily the cheaper option it might be the better option though so it's it's a, a real mindset change that needs to be brought in I think. Yeah just following on from what Helen has said there and, and really picking up on your question Rebecca about barriers to transformational adaptation for me there is a very simple thing that we could do to instantly make um, transformational adaptation easier. And at the moment, I cannot appraise manage realignment where people live. I can appraise manage realignment for um, uh, nature purposes, for environmental purposes, not where people live. Now, um, I've got colleagues that would say, of course, you can appraise it, Kelly. You can appraise anything. Yes, I could appraise painting the Thames barrier pink, but why would I want to? Now, the reason I say that is I can't appraise relocation. So the only way I can undertake a managed realignment at a scheme level rather than an ad hoc house there, house here, is through our FSERM appraisal process, our flood and coastal erosion risk management process. Now, I'll just take you through a normal FSERM appraisal. Now, if I'm looking at a hold the line frontage, um, I'll be saying, OK, I want to build something to defend that, that community. It's hold the line. We know it's the right thing to do. How about a seawall? That's going to cost me X million pounds. How many homes do I protect? And then going through the government and environment agency system, I'll get a certain amount of grant in aid for, for, for that process. I can't do that for managed realignment. At the moment, um, we've made a decision, uh, and I say we as a society, government, environment agency, whoever, um, that we are willing to fund traditional defences. A certain million number of pounds will come out my partnership funding calculator to build my seawall because I'm protecting X hundred or thousand homes. I cannot do that for relocation, for managed realignment. So I can't use that FSERM appraisal process. So that means there's no framework for that scheme. There's no way to undertake transition or adaptation at a scheme level um, because that framework doesn't exist. There's no funding for it because there's no grant in aid. There is a small DEFRA demolition grant on a, an individual home basis. I'm, I'm talking um, less than £10,000. Um, but I can't undertake scheme level transformational adaptation as I can with a defence scheme. And because I can't access that grant in aid, it, it just doesn't happen. It gets kind of stuck at an individual homeowner level. And there's a lot working against individual homeowners to deliver relocation. 
if I could do it at that scheme level, then I could pick up all those benefits that Helen's just outlined. Now, we know there's benefits associated with with cliffs eroding. Um, We know that they're supplying sediment, but I can't count that. I can't put that in my appraisal process. We know there's well-being benefits associated um, with allowing people to have a, a plan for the future, with knowing that they can move on elsewhere rather than, well, when your home gets to the edge, we're, we're just going to have to demolish it and, and give you a small grant to assist with that. There's also benefits with allowing um, communities to, to roll back inland with the, what we're going to do with that cliff top after they've rolled back. It may be that 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 cliff top or that area uh, might be great for environmental benefits. It could be good for renewable energy generation. There's all sorts of uses there. But at the moment, again, I can't appraise that. So for me, that's the biggest barrier. I would like to be able to appraise adaptation in exactly the same way as defence through that existing FSERM appraisal process, that that well-known process. Then we can let Coastal Partnership East or or whoever at local risk management authority take the lead through a a structured process to give certainty to communities. So for me, that's that's the biggest barrier at the moment. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to pass back to Sien now, who's going to ask everyone about their final thoughts on today. Yeah, I think it's not surprising that the time has absolutely flown and we're already through to the last few minutes of this discussion because I think the reason we're all here today is because we are passionate, we care about the coast and ensuring that adaptation is is designed and delivered effectively on our coasts and on increasing our understanding as a society and as people who work on the coast as to what adaptation are and why we need them. I feel like in some ways your discussion has led almost to a blueprint of what transformational adaptation on the coast should look like. And I'm just going to list some of the points that you made that really, in a positive way, I think almost define what we need and and some of what what we already have. Um, So we touched on changing mindsets and the fact that they have changed already over the last 20 years and that we're recognising that coasts change, that we need communities involved in those processes of change but equally that there is still scope to continue to improve on changing mindsets about what coastal management and coastal adaptation means and what we require of all sorts of different stakeholders to design and deliver those processes. Key to that is being careful in what language we use. That was also raised, and I think that could be another really important point of this blueprint, that we need to be honest. Honesty came up a lot, um, but that we don't We shouldn't become too dramatic or or try and frighten people. That's not honest either. But then nor is being too gentle and being evasive of some hard truths that we are facing. And that really leads into a point that was iterated by all of our guests today, which is that communities need to be at the heart of transformational adaptation. We can't pursue this for communities. This needs to be pursued by communities with coastal managers and, and all those stakeholders involved in coastal adaptation. It needs to be led by communities, although there are challenges associated with supporting communities in that process. Um, A few other aspects of this blueprint, there was a lot of discussion of the need to look long-term and wider scale, and wider scale meaning both um, whilst being place-based in our adaptation approach, recognising that places influence each other, both socially and physically. So what we choose to do in one place is going to impact another place along the coast. But then also that we need to consider the coast not just as that coastal margin, but look at a wider space that is the coast and all of the infrastructure and society that occupies that space. 
But I think the two other really pivotal points that came through are that we're doing good things and adaptation is happening, but we need adaptation and transformational adaptation to become the business as usual options, not the experimental, um, you know, let, let's see how we can do this options, but they need to become mainstreamed. And a real reason for that is that there is an urgency to taking these actions and developing these plans because floods and erosion events are happening and they keep on happening and we don't always know when the next one is going to happen. So we need to be prepared for it now. So that's the sort of blueprint that I took away. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to have the final word on this. I want to hand that over to you. And I just wondered whether you had any reflections on, I suppose, is that also what you take away from today? But perhaps also what are the barriers from moving towards that state of coastal management where we are doing adaptation every day? Yes, and I think you I think you've summarized it very, very well. And we ha- I think you know, let's on the positive front, we have moved, I think there have been significant advances over over the last 20 odd years. And yet, despite that, organizations like Coastal Partnership East are in many ways having to, you know, are working, if you like, with one arm behind their back. And they're they've learned they've learned very skillfully to work um to find their way and to work within a system that isn't particularly particularly good um, and which can be improved. And I suppose the one thing I would look at, and I'm mindful, you know, the constituency that I represent, an awful lot of the pros- future prosperity and the future opportunities for the area and also the future challenges aren't on land. They are on, the, if you like, the margin where we are, where we focus today, and there is also there is the offshore. Whether that is um, there are a lot of activities increasingly off the east coast, more activities taking place in our in our seas offshore. Whether that is um, whether that is the wind farms, whether that is the um, whether that is things like dredging, whether it's fishing, and I do think we all that planning. It's at the moment they take place in. They're in separate sort of pockets. They actually all do need to be brought together. And that, I think, is probably a challenge that we need to um, to, to sort of tackle over the, over the next few years. You know, when I talk to an organisation like the Crown Estate, I think they get it. They get, they now recognise that what they do offshore has an impact on land. And we need to be having that more sort of... Um, sort of inclusive approach to planning or in which will benefit coastal communities. Definitely. Um, I, I, I agree, Peter. It needs work from all parties when it comes to, to the, the barriers question that you, you pose, seen. Um, and uh, I totally understand what you say when um, the Coastal Partnership East have sort of been working with one arm behind their back. Yes, that, that very much picks up on, on the point I made about the difficulty of appraising adaptation. But this isn't one organisation's problem. It's, it's very easy when, when um, things start to get tricky that, that organisations will start to tell it like it is. So, you know, it's, it would be easy for me to say, oh, DEFRA just need to have a policy. Government just need to support this. Well, Coastal Partnership East need to come up with a plan or the Environment Agency needs to give people the money. It's not all one organisation's problem. This, this, is a, this is a multi-organisation issue. So 
we need to really sell the benefits of adaptation. That's that for me is is one of my key roles. How can I tell um, whether I'm working with DEFRA on policy, whether I'm working with MPs, um, or whether I'm working with Coastal Partnership East on the ground? I want everyone to be aware of the benefits of adaptation because there's loads of benefits of adaptation. Of course, to understand the benefits, you have to understand the the, the do nothing, the the baseline, the scenario. Um, but we know that, so we need to start selling those benefits, so that then we can go to communities. They can understand the baseline. They can see there are different options, and then they can really understand the benefits. And then we start to get communities on board. And you have a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes um, where communities, because they're faced with no options, will say, well, we must have defences, because what's the alternative? We must have defences. So then, of course, um, representatives of those communities will say, well, we must have defences. DEFRA is pushed on for your policy must promote defences. The Environment Agency is pushed on. You must fund defences. And so round and round we go. And we had a bit of a, a pivotal moment when it came to our oceans and plastic in the oceans through David Attenborough and really good representatives. Um, and I think we need to have that on the coast a little bit. We need to start to see there are benefits associated with working with our coast in a holistic way, with recognising that it changes, with knowing that we can't always build ourselves out of risk, particularly when we think about sea level rise and, and climate change. So, yeah, it's not one organisation's problem, we, but we all need to do our bit for sure. Yes, and I, and I do think it very much comes back to that sort of whole scale mindset change of just starting from that different position and um, totally agree with you with the, the the selling the benefits of adaptation but I think there's also a need to sell the necessity of adaptation and the reality of the future at the moment uh, sea level rise is an incremental change it, it's gradual it's it's barely noticeable by people um, in the past probably when humans have adapted it's been to a catastrophic change Somehow we've got to get over that. We don't want to wait for a catastrophic change in order to make us move to a different future. We need to be thinking about it now. So it's really that education as well, I think, to sort of share that message. And it's across all scales, as Kelly said, it's from sort of local communities up to the highest levels of, of government of we need to be thinking now, not being put in a situation in the future where we're going to have to react because undoubtedly we would make the wrong decision in that situation. So, Helen Jay, Kelly Fisher, Peter Aldous, thank you for joining us today at this panel discussion on transformational adaptation. We focused on the East Coast, but I think we got right up to national policy as well, um, which is very fitting for a discussion topic, which at its heart is about larger time and spatial scales and, and being more holistic in who we consider when we talk about coastal change. This work was part of an ESRC South Coast Doctoral Training Program Fellowship funded through the UKRI ESRC ES slash W0061891 one.